opening and closing theme is by Midnight Syndicate. For more dark instrumental music like it, visit www.midnightsyndicate.com or find them on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or Alexa. True crime stories are discussed in this podcast, which may contain graphic and disturbing content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome back to Freshly Brewed Noir. I'm Jennifer. And I'm Summer. And this is episode 46, Emanuela Orlandi's Disappearance. This is an episode full of conspiracies and theories. and Yeah, so this girl went missing at the age of 15 under really strange circumstances. Her disappearance is described as one of Italy's most baffling missing persons cases. And this episode, we're going to take you down a rabbit hole that leads to suspicions of mafia ties, the KGB, and a Vatican cover-up. Ooh, okay. You know I love me a good uh, rabbit hole. Well, I'm excited to hear what you will think about it. You know what you think. Yes, but I'm not going to say anything because I want to hear what you think first. Okay, but you'll tell us at the end. Yes, what of you course. Think. Okay, absolutely. All right, we'll discuss. Yes, so I got a lot of this information from the Netflix series called Vatican Girl, The Disappearance of Emanuela Orlandi. Emanuela was the fourth of five children born to Ercole and Maria Orlandi. The family lived in an apartment inside the Vatican City since Ercole worked as a clerk for the Pope. Emanuela played the flute and piano and sang in her school's choir. She lived inside the borders of the Vatican. People who work for the Pope live inside this small 0.2 square mile town. It's actually considered a state inside of a state. And it has a population at that time of just 100 people. Wow. It sounds like official. Like a little village. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And families that live inside the Vatican walls serve the Pope. And at midnight, the Vatican would close its gates. So it's kind of like... I guess any other town, except at night, the gates would close. Okay. And then he rules over? So people who serve the Vatican live inside the walls oh, of okay. Vatican so it's City. Oh, okay. So it's just his people. Yes. Like, gotcha. Okay. And Emanuela's school was outside of the Vatican. On June 22nd, 1983, Emanuela was rehearsing for the end of the year school show. And in the Netflix series, her older brother, Pietro, goes over the day she went missing. It was a very hot day in June. Emanuela had asked Pietro for a lift, and he told her he couldn't. And he recounts that he may have just been being lazy and not wanting to drive her, and how much he regrets that now. Later that day, Emanuela calls home and speaks to one of her sisters. She tells her that she was approached by a man outside of her school claiming to be an Avon representative. He offered her a job handing out brochures. Avon, like the makeup? Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh. It's been around for a while. I didn't realize it was going on. <laughs> okay. Emanuela was set to meet some friends around 7 p.m. by a popular bridge, but by 7.45 p.m., her friends realized she wasn't coming. The friends then asked Emanuela's parents if she'd come home, but she hadn't. By 9.30 that night, her family was panicking and called all of the hospitals, and then decided to go out to look for her. Emanuela's father tried to file a report with the police, but they said it was too soon. Her uncle and cousin were called, and they started searching for her, showing people a picture of Emanuela. When her mother went to the police the next morning to report Emanuela missing and showed them a current photo of her, they said to her mother, Well, I wouldn't worry. She's not really all that pretty. At least, not pretty enough to have been abducted. She probably just ran off on her own accord. 
well, that's some shit. Isn't that? They said that to the mother. Yeah. Like, what nerve do you have to say that to somebody? It's awful. And this is... The police. Wow. Okay. Well, clearly they're concerned. An officer from that time said two witnesses had seen Emanuela, or a girl that looked like her, being approached by a man in his mid-30s to early 40s, about 5 foot 10 inches tall, and he drove a green BMW. This led the police to believe this person may have been the Avon man. Do we know who this man is? Mm -hmm. Like, well... We'll get into that. Oh, okay. Once news got out that a Vatican girl was missing, the police got a ton of calls. One call from a man who called himself Pierre Luigi, but called the girl Barbara and described her as a girl that was handing out Avon brochures and had a flute. Then the parents got some strange visitors to their home who said they had to set up a listening device to the phone. So this is like Secret Service people now. They got a call from a man named Mario now, who said he knew Emanuela, but called her Barbarella, and did say she had been excited to sing in the choir. This was information that had not been released to the public about her singing in the choir. She had gone missing with her flute, so the general public may have assumed she was playing it in the end of the year program. This seemed like a legitimate lead. Okay. Her family decides to put up posters all over of Emanuela with the word scomparsa, which means missing. And at this point, the Vatican could not ignore what was going on. So the police that they initially went to, are they police inside the Vatican? The police they went to at first were outside the Vatican because her school was outside of the Vatican. Ah, okay. July 3rd, 1983, 12 days after Emanuela's disappearance, John Paul II, who was the Pope at that time, spoke about Emanuela during the Sunday gathering in St. Peter's Square. The Pope mentioned that Emanuela had gone missing and that the public should not lose hope in the spirit of humanity of those who are responsible for this case. It was not clear why the Pope spoke about Emanuela, whether it was in sympathy for her family or was the church intervening. Many people thought his words were strange in that he says, I'm talking to whom is responsible for this case, which led some to believe he knew she was abducted. And he also says, I hope she will be returned to her family, showing he knows she is still alive. But how would he know? That is kind of weird, that phrasing that he used. Mm -hmm. Lose hope in the spirit of humanity of those who are responsible for this case. Almost like um, there's some knowledge of what's going on, huh? Yeah, and kind of like wanting the person who took her, potentially, to hear this. Mm-hmm. It is strange. I don't know what it means. Well, see if you know by the end. Okay. Two days after the Pope's appeal to the public, the family received another call about Emanuela. The man had an accent that sounded American, but he spoke Italian. He told the family he spoke to their daughter and there wasn't much time. The man played a recording of a girl saying something about national boarding school, Victor Emmanuel II, I should be in the third year of high school next year, and it was repeated. The parents said they knew it was Emmanuel's voice. They believe the kidnappers maybe told her to give some identifying information so that the parents would believe it was actually her, and that's why the name of her school, and then also going into the third year of high school next year. And of course, her parents are going to recognize her voice. Mm -hmm. So is, that's just them proving they have her. Right. 
So the man said by the 20th of July, they would kill Emanuela unless the Italian authorities released Mehmet Aliacha. Aliacha was a man who attempted to kill the Pope in May of 1981. So what happened in that event was the Pope was shot in the abdomen and his left hand by Mehmet Aliacha. Aliacha runs from the Vatican territory, but they describe it as he's rugby tackled by a nun and apprehended. <laughs> oh, like, wow. Rugby tackled by a nun. That's so this is awesome. an attempted like assassination. Yes. The Pope actually had to have a foot of his large intestine removed from that surgery, but he did survive. Wow. Okay. So he's obviously being kept now. I mean, he's in what? Custody? Aliacha is in custody, and so the kidnappers are saying basically they want to exchange Aliacha's release for Emanuela's release. Okay. I mean, it sounds like it's someone who worked potentially with him. Potentially. Okay. But keep listening. A few days after the call from the American, they received another call from the kidnappers, which said they instructed ANSA, which was the Italian press agency, on where to find a package that proves Emanuela is alive and that they have her. So they go to this package and open it, and in it was a photocopy of her music school card, a tuition payment receipt, and a message from her written on a piece of paper that stated, with much affection, your Emanuela in this Netflix series is Andrea Pugatori, and he is an investigative journalist. He was very into this case, but he said that that didn't really sound like proof of life. And so I guess the family was urged to ask the kidnappers for official proof of life because copies of all these documents aren't proof of life. Right. And even the piece of paper that was written um, yeah, could they have been said, written by anybody. Right. And they said it did look like her handwriting, although it didn't look like it was written in distress. So it could have been from anything that she had written at school. It just proved that somebody had access to her things, but maybe not access to her. So they were asking for proof of life from the kidnappers. Makes sense. So on July 8th, this is 12 days until the deadline the kidnappers had given the family... Aliacha publicly condemns the kidnapping of Emanuela while being transferred to police headquarters in Rome to be questioned by authorities. So on the news, they're recording him being transferred and being walked up into the police station. And he's just condemning her kidnappers. And I'm not a part of it. I'm with the family. Release Emanuela. Nothing to do with me. Like, oh, that was interesting. Yeah, because if it was someone who worked with him, you would think that he'd be like, yeah. yes, release me. and Release uh, me. You can get her back. But he was like, I'm not a part of this. Release the girl. I support the girl and her family. And he was yelling that as they were walking him up into police headquarters. Okay, well, that's... That's a little different, yeah. right? Aliacha said there was a connection with the KGB and that he had attempted to kill the Pope for the Soviet Union, now Russia, and that they wanted him free so they could kill him so he'd be silenced. So Aliacha says this has to do with the KGB. And, and what's the KGB? The KGB was a spy group in Russia, which was the Soviet Union at that time. Gotcha. Very notorious. I guess it was their intelligence agency. Okay. And they wanted him released so they could kill him, cover their tracks. Exactly. Or... That's what he's saying. So now he's pulling in the KGB. July 17th. Three days until the deadline. Ansa gets another call from the kidnappers, which says there is proof of Emanuela being alive and gives directions to a location where there is a package. The reporter finds an audio tape. One side of the tape contains 
the usual message from the kidnappers, which demanded Aliacha's release in exchange for a Manuela's. On the other side of the audio tape was this terrifying audio of a girl being tortured, and they play it on the Netflix series. And it does sound like a young girl saying, oh God, why? Why? It hurts. It's awful. Yeah, but it's an audio format. Because they want a proof of life. And they said, send us proof of life of a Manuela. And so the kidnapper sent an audio tape of her. But that could be any woman, right? Could, yep. So the kidnappers were offered a confidential telephone line to the Vatican to communicate with the Secretary of State and negotiate Emanuela's release. Emanuela's family talked about how awful this time was. Her sister describes it as if Emanuela's on death row and they have a deadline and they know she's going to be executed. So helpless and just they can't do anything to help her. I mean, technically, they don't know if she's alive or not, but on the chance that she is alive, there's this deadline that I'm sure is filling the family with anxiety. Mm-hmm. Now it's July 20th, the deadline, and a call comes in from the kidnapper saying Emanuela is still alive, but she only had a few hours to live if Aliacha was not freed and that she would be killed at midnight. The so ne- what is the stance of the Pope? They're just not doing anything with Aliacha? They're just like... There was just no chance of them releasing him like a non-negotiable thing. They're not going to release somebody who attempted to assassinate the Pope. That's a request that wouldn't have been entertained. Not at all. And I don't know how the negotiations went once the line to the Vatican was opened where the kidnappers could talk straight to the Secretary of State. I don't know how those negotiations went. They didn't say anything about those, but obviously they went nowhere because the next day there was no news from the kidnappers. The general thought was that the kidnappers realized that Aliacha would not be released and the police really thought they would receive a new demand from them. Like, okay, they're not going to release Aliacha, but maybe they'll give us money or maybe they'll do something else. And so that's what the police thought, that they would have another chance to negotiate her release with her captors. Even though they'd never said that. They never said that. No, they never said we have a backup request. It was all about Aliacha. Interesting that they just assumed that then. Yeah. After the 20th comes and goes, and there's no news about Emanuela, her father said the Secret Service, who was at their house constantly, asked if they could take the calls off their hands that they were getting and transfer them to a lawyer's office. He said they could not afford that, but the Secret Service told them it would not be the family's concern. So the calls were then routed to an attorney by the name of Gennaro Aguidio. This was a bankruptcy attorney with no experience in terrorist negotiations or crime or kidnappings, which made no sense to me that they would have this attorney receive these calls. As a bankruptcy attorney, there may be some negotiation skills he would have, but absolutely nothing to do with terrorist activity. Exactly. So what was their plan with this? Why did they choose him? This is from Andrea Pugatori the investigative journalist, he thinks that this was the type of man who could put a lid on secrets because he did some research about him. And he described Egidio like the silencer on the end of a gun. And Purgatori wrote a story for the paper which talked about how the evidence pointed to the kidnapping being managed by a criminal organization, not a political one. But nobody really wanted to listen to him at that time. But what secrets is he meant to keep a lid on? Whatever secret the Vatican is hiding. Okay. So that's why they trusted him, because they thought he would be like a confidential. That's what this investigative reporter said, is that he was the type of man that could put a lid on secrets. 
Hmm. Clearly there are secrets that need to be kept. <laughs> there's, I wonder. there's a lot of secrets in this case. All right. December 14th. The final call came into the lawyer from the kidnappers, but there was just silence on the other end. And so that was disheartening to the family because they were fearful that Emanuela had been killed at this point or that the kidnappers were just not going to negotiate anymore. That was really discouraging. Yeah. So it's like silence basically means like it's done. It's over. Yeah. I can see why they'd feel that way. Then on December 24th, the family got a call from the Vatican and were informed that the Pope would be visiting their home. The family felt that the Pope shared in their suffering, and it was a beautiful moment. Then the Pope told them it was a case of international terrorism, which, like, Where's the brother... Where's the international right, part coming from? So the brother, and he's a very big part of this Netflix series, Pietro, because he... Has never stopped searching for his sister, and he really digs into things. And he thought that was, I mean, that is interesting that the Pope would tell them that it's a case of international terrorism. Yeah, and now he's taking like a personal. Yeah, like how like he's you... visiting them personally, right? Even though they had no intention of doing any kind of negotiation. No. So it's like, why is this sudden interest yeah. here? It almost seems like he's trying to throw them off of the Vatican as being any part of this and kind of put the attention on international terrorism. Like, it's not the Vatican. It's not anything to do with us. It's all about international terrorism. Why would he have anything to do with saying what the kidnapping was about? How would he know? Why would he even speak about it to them? And I guess he did, like, share in their suffering, and they felt like most of it was a beautiful moment. But that part was strange yeah i'm not understanding why he's wanting to suddenly be involved now after not doing anything yeah and then making that weird statement about her political terrorism to 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 the family kidnappers um like uh, initially at first oh when he spoke at st peter's square yeah so all of it's kind of just strange to me Andrea Pugatori reached out to a high-ranking official of the Italian Secret Service. This official only met him while on the streets, and they had to be walking, so Pugatori couldn't take notes. And his source said the audio tape was actually from a porn video, is what they determined, and it wasn't Emanuela. And that this case had nothing to do with terrorism or the KGB or Aliacha. Wait, where are they getting that from? So this is a Secret Service agent, like very high up. So this investigative reporter has some connections. One of his connections was in the Secret Service. They narrowed down that that audio was from a porn video? they did. Wow, okay. If it is having to do with international terrorism, the Secret Service is going to get involved. They are going to investigate it because it's not just a random kidnapping now. And if it has anything to do with terrorism, they're going to get involved. Now that he's made that claim, yeah. So his contact told him it has nothing to do with terrorism, the KGB, or Aliacha. It had something to do with what had gone on inside of the Vatican related to crime and money. Why would they specifically ask for Aliacha then? We'll get into that. When Pugatori brought this information up at his office, he was removed from reporting on the case. Oh, well, if that doesn't tell you something, then... Like, you're getting too close. Yeah, when you get removed from something like that, what else is there to think? Right. (laughs) So nothing happens with the case for a while. Like, there's no new leads. They don't know anything. 
And then 10 years passes by, the family gets a call from the police and we're asked to come take a look at a picture of a young woman. She was at a convent and it was a very grainy picture from far away. And they asked, could this be a Manuela? The family was like, well, I mean, it's been 10 years. It could, you know, so they got plane tickets and went to Luxembourg, which is right between France and Germany. So they flew out there immediately and they met up with local authorities who had taken the girl from the convent to meet up with the mother. The mother goes into a room to meet the young lady and they both start crying, realizing they didn't know each other. So it wasn't a Manuela. And the son says he could tell right away on his mom's face, like it wasn't her. Yeah. So it was a lead that ended up not being a Manuela. And so now it is 2004. And Manuela's father passes away. So he had held out hope that she would still be brought home that entire time. Mm. A year later, after he dies, Pope John Paul II dies. And a few weeks after the Pope dies, a new witness comes forward. Oh. So this is now 22 years after Emanuela's disappearance, and the witness is a journalist by the name of Rafaela Notarale. She receives a message telling her to investigate who is buried in the crypt of Santa Polinar Basilica and the favor Renatino did for Cardinal Poletti at that time, if she wants answers regarding Emanuela Orlandi's case. Okay. So a very specific tip... Naming names, telling her where to look. So she immediately goes on to Google Earth and is looking for this particular basilica. And it was right in the center of Rome, next to Emanuela's music school, actually. That was the last place she was seen. So she's like, well, there is a connection there. The reporter goes to the basilica and down into the crypt. And in front of this giant sarcophagus was the name Enrico de Pettis. What? And... (laughs) It's like a what novel. What was it written in? No, he blood was. No, it wasn't written in blood. No, it was an actual burial. And so his name was written oh. out. Enrico de Pettis was a powerful Italian mob boss. He was called the King of the Underworld. And he was known as Renatino, the name that the caller left her. And he led an Italian crime organization called the Banda della Magliana. Now, this particular basilica. Tell me if I'm, like, too much information. There's so much information that's coming in now. I know. This is all, like, new stuff, too. Like, yeah. I had to rewind this part. I was like, wait, what? Basilica? Where? And then who is this? It was a lot. So I was like, let me just rewatch this part. So this particular basilica where he was buried was a Vatican-owned church, which meant that special permission must be granted to be buried here, or you had to have done a very big favor for the Vatican. So just like the message says, like, what was that favor? So what was it? Well, do we find out? (laughs) Raffaella needed to find the connection between the Vatican, the Banda de la Magliana, and Emanuela's disappearance. So she did some research and tracked down his former girlfriend at that time. And her name is Sabrina Minardi. They called her Sabri. Raffaella tells her boss where she is going and says, if you don't hear from me in an hour, send help because something went wrong. Good. I'm glad she, like, she, yeah, she was thinking, covered like, herself. this was a ex-mob boss girlfriend. So. Yeah, with, like, conspiracies with the Vatican. Yes. And she was smart. Possible to... conspiracies. Right. Alleged. <laughs> so it was smart of her to let somebody know where she was going. So Raffaella makes it to Sabri's door and knocks, introduces herself as a reporter, 
Sabri lets her in, but pats her down first, looking for a microphone. Sabri confirmed that she was the lover of Enrico Renatino de Pettis, the boss of the Banda de la Magliana. She said she was 22 years old when she met Enrico at a bar. He bought her a bottle of champagne, and they left the bar together. And the next evening, he asked her out again, and they started dating. She said that they had only been dating for about a month when she read in the paper that he was wanted for eight murders. Oh, well, that's a little uh, jarring that's right a, there. That's a bummer right there. You might need to uh, break up with him. New but, boo, but eight then, murders. And I'm sure she's like, well, would I get murdered if I break up with him? Well, no, this girl was like madly in love. So she asked him about it and he denied hurting anybody. So she stayed with him. She said it must have been love. Oh my gosh, I would never be that <laughs> blinded by love. No. Excuse murder. You would not. Absolutely not. Sabri said it was a hot summer's day in 1983, and she had just started using a lot of cocaine. She said she went to a nearby lake with DePettis, and they met his driver, who had a girl in the car. Sabri said she didn't know who the girl in the car was. She remembers them telling her they needed to take the girl to her house outside of Rome for a few days. And I think the car was either a BMW or it was green. There was a connection between the car that was bringing Emanuela to them and the car that was seen in the square around her school with the Avon guy. So there was a connection there. But then again, there were a lot of BMWs at that time in that area. So, I mean, it, it could be nothing. Mm-hmm. It could be something. She remembers them telling her they needed to take the girl to her house outside of Rome for a few days, to Sabri's house. Sabri says that a lady named Adelaide came over to take care of or watch over Emanuela so that she could use the bathroom, bathe, eat, etc. because she was very drugged during this time. And she was locked in a room, Sabri said, the entire time that she was there. There was a separate lady who would come over and give Emanuela pills to quote-unquote make her behave. Sabri thinks these were drugs to make her weak and disoriented so she couldn't escape. So she was actually there. It sounds like it. Oh, I just wonder, like, what did she have to do with any of this to warrant being kidnapped? Was she just someone, like, they just saw and they were like, we're going to use her as a hostage for negotiations with the Vatican? Maybe we'll find out. Okay. Sabri said Emanuela would groan in pain most of the day in the room. I'm sure from the drugs that she was given. Mm-hmm. Sabri did nothing. She said she's positive it was Emanuela, though, even though they did cut her hair when she had arrived. Sabri said that after 10 days, they decided to move Emanuela to a house which had huge basements in Monteverde, which was south of the Vatican City. She said sometime later, DePettis told her to go to a certain bar where there was a parked BMW. When she got there, she was told to drive Emanuela to the Vatican petrol station in the BMW where there would be a person with a Vatican license plate. This person would take Emanuela from her. And she does this. So as she drove Emanuela, she says that she asked her her name, but the girl didn't answer, but she still believes it was her. So the whole time, she was possibly with the Vatican? No, she was exchanged to someone who works in the Vatican. Right. So Sabri did think about letting her go, but she didn't. And she says that when she arrived at the gas station, a man dressed as a priest got out of the black car that had a Vatican license plate. 
She and the priest took Emanuela out of the BMW and put her in the car with the Vatican license plate, and the man dressed as a priest drove off with Emanuela. And what day was this? I don't know if her dates are exact. But it was within that time frame where they had the deadline? Yes. Oh. Sabri says she went back and spoke to DePettis and said angrily, What did you rope me into? I know who that girl is. It's a Manuela Orlandi. But DePettis just told her it's a game of power, Sabri. And Rafaela speaks about the interview with Sabri. And Sabri is on the Netflix special. She did not age well. Oh, no. <laughs> After that, uh, how so, can you? I'm just saying. Yeah, how can you? <laughs> she shows pictures of when she was younger. It's like a different person. But I guess, you know, stealing children will not age you well. I think you're right. Oh, so Rafaela, when she speaks about the interview with Sabri, says that she believes the facts of her story are true due to the details she gave about them. But she does think that some things were embellished to make herself seem more in control or brave instead of just a pawn for a DePettis. And I think I agree with that because she speaks in Italian, so it's translated. But the thing she says when it comes to, like, all this stuff she's doing for him, she's literally helping him kidnap a child and driving this child to another location and another. I think she tries to act like she's like, well, I asked him what this was about, and I knew it was Emanuela. And so she does try and make herself look like she was tough or something, but I'm not sure how much she really confronted him. That's questionable. Yeah, I would question that as well. It was just like blinded by love, doing whatever he wanted. I mean, he's a mafia boss. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't think it, people would challenge him. No, exactly. So I think she was probably scared of him. Yeah, and especially I, after you hear he's murdered eight people. Yeah. That's got to be in the back of your mind somewhere. Right. So this revelation by Minardi basically opened the case back up in 2006. How long ago was it closed? It's been over two decades. This really like blew the case back open to mm. being an actively worked case. But at first, the police didn't believe Sabrina Minardi. They thought the story seemed too outlandish with a priest picking up a kidnapped girl at the Vatican. But after interviewing her, they realized her story sounded solid. They first checked out the apartment where Sabri said Emanuela was taken to after staying at her house. And records showed that it was owned by a woman with known ties to the Banda de la Magliana. And the description of the apartment that Sabri gave matched what the police saw during their search of it. They noticed that there was a wall built that didn't match the original plans of the building as they're searching, almost like a secret entrance to another part with a basement. And behind that wall, the police were completely horrified to find rooms with gates on them in complete darkness. Like, think barbarian, Jennifer. We'll put this in our story. It, oh, basement. so these were the where the cages were and yes. stuff. Mm-hmm. And here's a picture going down into there. Oh, this is totally like barbarian. Yeah, look at that. That is terrifying. So they were keeping people in there? Yes. That's horrific. I'll put these pictures in our story. They're screenshots I took on the Netflix series when they show the rooms down there. It just looks... If you've seen the movie Barbarian, it looks like that basement. It's freaky. It's hidden for a reason, right? Right. I mean, you can only imagine what happens. It was a mob group, so I'm sure that's where they kept people. Like torture. And... Yeah. Ugh. So remember that 22 years earlier, Andrea Pugatori had written a piece which said that the kidnapping was managed by a criminal organization. But nobody listened at that time, and he was taken off the case as a reporter. 
So he thought that the Banda de la Magliana was trying to get a ransom from the Vatican. A whole bunch of other stuff's coming in, so get ready. That's a whole nother theory? <laughs> it's just a whole pile of more people and, and things popping up. All right. So now it's discovered that Mauricio Abatino, who worked under a branch of the Banda de la Magliana during the time of Emanuela's disappearance and later became a police informant, was interviewed in 2017. Wait, what? <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> became a police informant? Yes. Yeah, after so, working for that, for that organization? So he was working for the crime organization. He gets arrested and cuts a deal and becomes an informant. So he was interviewed in 2017 by a reporter, different Raffaella, named Raffaella Finelli. And she has actually written about the Banda de la Magliana. And she basically bombarded him with messages for two years and he finally spoke to her she like harassed him enough that he was like fine i'll speak to you so she was relentless as i'm sure most good investigative reporters are yeah and during her interview she asked him about emanuela and during the time of her exact kidnapping he was incarcerated but someone from the group the banda de la magliana had come to visit him and to kind of keep him up to date of what was going on Abatino said he didn't give it much attention at the time because he had his own problems going on. But some girl he doesn't know. Right. So he's just like, whatever, you know, just kind of listening to the updates, but, you know, not really giving it too much thought. But he was told that she was kidnapped for money. Money the mafia had given Depetis that had ended up in Vatican banks and hadn't been paid back. He told Rafaela Emanuela's kidnapping was connected to money. You know, I could believe that. Mm -hmm. Right now, this sounds like the most believable to me. But of course, I don't know what other theories you're throwing at me. There's going to be more stuff. Just wait. Okay. Then the documentary gets into some religious politics of the time and prophecies. But I'm going to let those that want to watch the series enjoy that rabbit hole. There's a lot. I'll give you like a little Cliff Notes version. $200 million was being channeled through the Vatican for political reasons, which they can't do because the money from the Vatican Bank must be used for charities, not paid to political parties. It was being funneled to an anti-communist movement in Poland. So a bunch of religious politics going on. And if you want to know more about that, watch the series. But that's all you really truly need to know is that money was being funneled through the Vatican Bank. Like laundering situation. Yes, exactly. So these payments couldn't be seen on the Vatican books. So a man by the name of Roberto Calvi, a big deal money launderer. Good job, Jennifer. Look at me, I've watched a lot of Breaking Bad. (laughs) And chairman of Banco Ambrosiano helped disguise the transactions. Sabri Minardi's testimony seems to back this up because she would take, she said, bags full of money. She said huge Louis Vuitton bags full of cash to the office of Archbishop Paul Marchinkus, who was head of the bank during that time. And she said nobody asked her any questions of Mm. why do you have these giant bags of money? They just took them. They knew what they were for. Yes. It ends up that Marchinkus is later indicted in 1982 as an accessory in a multi-billion dollar financial collapse of Banco Ambrosiano. Wow. So it was discovered that Banco Ambrosiano had funneled more than $1 billion to shell or dummy companies, which it is suspected were set up by the Vatican Bank. So obviously the Vatican Bank is somehow connected to the mafia 
and money's being funneled. Like there's... Yeah, there's a connection there. Absolutely. For sure. Calvi was actually found hanging from a bridge in London on June 17th, 1982. And he's, he worked with the Vatican Bank? Yes, he was that money launderer. And he was found... He was found hanging. So that was one year almost to the day before Emanuela was kidnapped. But Calvi's death was ruled a suicide. Some suspect the mob took him out. The family even hired a forensic scientist who determined that he was murdered. Because she goes through and says, like, where he was found on this particular bridge, he would have had to climb down scaffolding, would have gotten all of this debris and dirt on his pants. They had somebody actually crawl down the route he would have had to go to hang himself. And they said it just didn't make any sense. They said it sounds more like he was murdered. Also because they said when the mob would murder somebody, they would want to make it very theatrical. And he had all these different um, foreign currencies in his pocket. And then he had a, a rope tied to his neck. And so it was like they were making an example out of him. And the bridge he was hung on, it was the Blackfriars Bridge, I believe. I mean, it was related to the Vatican. So it was all basically like, hey, we're going to make an example out of him. So you better give us our money or you're next. I can definitely see the mafia doing that. Mm-hmm. Like making an example out of one. And you're like, okay, you better do right. what we want. Right. Give us back our money. Yeah. And Purgatory believes that Emanuela's kidnapping was another message to the Vatican to return their money. Because she was someone who lived in, in the Vatican City. Right. She was a Vatican girl. The more I'm hearing about this, the more like connection, it seems. right? Yeah. So then in 2013, while police are still investigating Minardi's statements, a new witness emerges who had contacted a news outlet. This guy claims to have kidnapped Emanuela himself and to have been the one who orchestrated the entire story. He even had a flute, which he claimed to be Emanuela's. It ends up that there's no DNA evidence linking it to Emanuela's, but the family did think it was her. So he has some possible connection or access to her things. It's uncertain how he got the flute and if it's even Emanuela's. And is he the Avon guy? No, no, okay. no. Oh. So this guy, his name is Marco Accetti. He's hard to watch because he's very annoying. You can tell he loves the attention. Mm. I mean, he's dressed in like a dark cap. He looks like he's about to do some night stalking. So do we think he's just someone who wants attention? Didn't really do anything? Well, hold on. A major issue with Achetti's claims was that he couldn't answer some very important questions about the telephone calls he allegedly made to the family in those early days. And it was things the kidnapper would have known, like the fact that Emanuela had an injury on her wrist or arm, according to the kidnapper, but that she was treated by two Italian doctors and was fine. And this is information the kidnappers gave the family during those first few days after the kidnapping. And he was like, I, I don't know. Yeah, stuff that like, you would know that. You would know an injury uh, on this big deal case of this girl you kidnapped that you told us about. Yeah. So, you know, that was one thing that was like, well, he doesn't really know some very obvious things that somebody should remember. Yeah, it's an inconsistency. It was also discovered that this man, Marco Accetti, had been obsessed with Emanuela's case all of these years and most likely just wanted to interject himself into the case due to his obsession. Oh my God, those people are so annoying. Mm -hmm. It's like, you have nothing to do with this. Just because you're obsessed with it doesn't mean you yeah. should like put yourself in there. And he's very theatrical. He just seems so full of shit. But he sends the police on basically a wild goose chase, and he just upsets the family. All he wants is attention. 
Achetti also claims to have abducted Murella Gregori, a Rome schoolgirl who, at 16, disappeared on May 7, 1983, 45 days before Emanuela disappeared. Murella left her house after a call from a classmate and said she'd be right back but never returned. And she still hasn't been found to this day either. Huh. Mm-hmm. Now, Emanuela's sister says that Archetti caused them unnecessary pain. And here's some information about Archetti. He had a long history of trouble with the law. And two of the more disturbing reports were that he had an inappropriate relationship with a 17-year-old girl and was convicted of manslaughter of a 12-year-old boy. Are these alleged or are these actual things that they can prove happened? It was police reports. Oh, And so it's not stated what type of quote-unquote relationship he had with a 17-year-old girl, just that it was an inappropriate one. So we really don't know what happened in that. But for there to be that type of report, it would make you wonder. He has this obsession with young girls, and he was also convicted of manslaughter of a 12-year-old boy. Sensacetti was going to the news now, claiming to have kidnapped multiple girls, The court ordered a psychological evaluation by forensic psychiatrist Professor Stefano Ferracuti, who found Achetti to have a need to be the center of attention and had a narcissistic histrionic personality disorder with psychopathic elements. So that kind of just scratches that off the list, right? Well, hold on. (laughs) Okay. Because the audio recordings from 1983 from the kidnapper or kidnappers were actually compared to Achetti's voice in several interviews. And it was determined that the first set of calls from July to September to the family were not his. But then another voice is discovered from September to December. And it is believed that it is Marco Achetti who made those calls. Can you hear the calls? The only thing they compare is his voice on the interview with a couple short clips from the audio. So it's not a lot of audio that they are putting on the special, probably because they can't release all of it or something. Okay. But from what you can hear, it does sound like... I don't know, but this was a an audio specialist. He compared both. And he said that it was actually, they believe it was his voice in the later calls, though. The caller, believed to be a Chetty, described Murella Gregori's clothes in detail in those calls and was obsessed with Murella in the calls, even though he also spoke of Emanuela and created this big tale. So investigators believe that a Chetty did have something to do with Murella's case and disappearance, but not with Emanuela's, and that he should be investigated regarding Murella's disappearance. And they believe Achetti may have actually kidnapped Murella. But then Emanuela was kidnapped 45 days later. And it was such a huge story. And she was a minor. Right. And he wanted to be part of that story. And so he kind of used that as the catalyst to talk about Murella's case just for attention. Yeah, I would believe that he would be involved in Murella's case. But he really didn't have any knowledge of Emanuela's case. That would lead you to believe he had connection with it. Yeah, it just sounds like he's inserting himself in there. Because that case got a lot of attention, and he likes attention. (sighs) Well, I'm not thinking he's like a big part in this. um, No, but he made himself a big part. Half of one episode, and they finally are like, you know, we don't even want to give him any more attention than this. But obviously they have to talk about it, because it is part of the case. And he's interviewed. He's interviewed, and the brother actually interviews him at one point. 
And the brother, he's like, it just took everything to not want to slam him up against the wall. He was so I know, upset. to give him that screen time, yeah. what were they thinking? I mean, they were just trying to get answers. But it does sound like he has nothing to do with her. He just tried to make himself have something to do with it. But he's still under investigation regarding the other. They said he should be. I don't know if he's being investigated about that yet. But he gave details about the clothes she was wearing, very detailed. They said the police should really investigate him regarding Murella's disappearance. In 2016, the Vatican leaks or Vati leaks happen. This is where documents from inside the Vatican were leaked showing bribes and corruption from within the Vatican. One document that was allegedly stolen and then returned was a file about Emanuela Orlandi. One reporter asked his sources to get him a copy of that file. The document he receives from his source is dated March 28, 1988, and the title is, This is a list of the expenses sustained by the Vatican State relating to the citizen Emanuela Orlandi. And who wrote this? This was a document from inside the Vatican that was supposedly leaked. This would indicate that someone inside the Vatican knew what happened to her years after her disappearance. In the document written by Cardinal Lorenzo Antonetti, he managed the Vatican's assets. It goes on to state that he will list the expenses for the domestic removal of the citizen Emanuela Orlandi. Costs, well, removal of a citizen, you're taking her somewhere. Uh, I didn't know if that was like code for removal. It could be, but this expense list goes from 1983 all the way to 1997. If this is accurate, she lived for another 14 years, not in Italy, in another country, in London, England. There were expenses for food, travel, medical, housing. In hiding? Just being kept maybe hostage? Or... So... The housing that was provided was a youth hostel for girls owned by a Catholic group who had strong ties to the Vatican. It does sound like she was kept there. We don't know under what type of treatment, if this document is accurate. Who knows? That's scary. Yeah. That's scary. So potentially... She's in another country. She probably doesn't speak the language. And then she's at a youth hostel with a bunch of girls after being drugged and kept in a basement and... Probably being monitored. Yeah. Like if she's being kept there, maybe not able to leave. Mm -hmm. So that's probably why no one's heard from her, if this is the case. Steps were taken to investigate the hostel and see if there was a record of Emanuela, but she was most likely living there under another name, so they didn't find any information that was helpful. The final expense item refers to the transfer of her body back to Italy for burial. Investigative reporter Andrea Purgatori questions the authenticity of the document, though. A tip comes in with a picture of a tomb and states that if they want to find where Emanuela Orlandi is, they must find this angel. Pietro, her brother, and his attorney search cemeteries around the Vatican and find one with the angel in the picture. Pietro sends a letter to the Vatican calling them out and stating that now they may have a tip that Emanuela is buried on their soil and so they must respond. And surprisingly, they do respond and agree to dig up the sites with the tombs near the angel. Unfortunately, there are no bones there belonging to Emanuela, and surprisingly, there are not even the bodies of the two German princesses that were said to be buried there, which I thought was strange. Yeah, that is weird. Those are the people that are supposed to be buried there. Isn't that weird? What's that about? 
all kinds of strange things going it's on. Like, maybe it was dug up and then they took all the bones. They just removed the like, well, we don't want. We don't know whose bones Yeah, are we're just going to take everyone's bones, right? Oh. Could be. Another tip comes in that the kidnappers called someone at the Vatican the evening of Emmanuel's disappearance. But the first thing the Vatican does is call its press office. Didn't alert the parents. Let's call our PR team. Mm -hmm. So this would prove that the Vatican did know about the kidnapping before it was reported to the police the next morning and that the kidnapping was indeed to blackmail the Vatican. But why? Why, Jennifer? Do we find out why? Okay, I got one more part of this. One more theory? One more. Oh, jeez. Okay. One of Emanuela's best childhood friends, who wanted to remain anonymous, gives testimony on the series that two weeks before her disappearance, Emanuela told her that she was approached by a person very close to the Pope, a cardinal, while walking in the Vatican Gardens, and he had bothered her. Now, by bothered her, she was referring to sexual advances made on her by this cardinal. You have to understand, there have never been any accusations of sexual abuse within the Vatican. So if this event happened, it would be a huge scandal that senior members were committing sexual assault on children. So Emanuela's friend said that they knew they couldn't tell anyone because nobody would believe them. And she knew since her father worked for the Vatican, she didn't want to get him fired or have to move. So there was also a sense of shame about what had happened, which is the case when children are sexually abused. And the friend breaks down and cries. I believe the friend's story because she says, I don't know what I could have done. She said we wouldn't have been believed these two girls with those type of accusations. She also feels some guilt or some regret about not saying anything. I don't know if she thinks that would have helped to save her or something, but she just said, we just didn't think anyone would believe the story. And I mean, that's true. And then they're a part of what a powerful organization like the Vatican. Yeah. It's not unheard of for people in religious groups to have those kind of allegations against them. So Maria Orlandi, who is 92 now, says that she hopes to hug her daughter again and thinks about her every day, prays for her. And that gives her strength. Emanuela's brother, Pietro, still investigates his sister's disappearance, and he wants the Vatican to give them answers. He asked the Vatican to do it for his mother. If Emanuela is dead, let them know so his mother can bring a flower to her grave. Pietro says his sister has been missing for 37 years now, and they will never stop looking for her. And that's proven to be true. I mean, they're determined to find Mm -hmm. answers, which really is like a testament to the family. It's so sad, though, because... It's like, would you rather have closure no matter what the... What they find out. Yeah. And it sounds like he says they would. They would just like to know if she's dead, where is she? Let us know. Yeah. A lot of theories, financial scandal with the Vatican Bank, mobsters, sexual abuse being a possibility with inside the Vatican. Mm -hmm. So she was silenced for that. Whichever theory you believe, though, they all lead to the Vatican, don't they? That's true. There's no way that they're not involved. Right. Okay. What do you think it is? And then I'll tell you what I think. I swear. Okay. I kind of think that there's a little bit of two. Okay. I I think that the mafia and the, you know, financial stuff. I do believe that because of the money situation, like the mafia is going to get their money. They're going to make a statement and for them to already kill somebody alleged. Well, you know, a suicide, but what I believe, right. <laughs> you know. And so I think it's possible that they would kidnap somebody who lived 
in the Vatican to try to get money or try to make them pay. I also think the sexual assault thing could be something that was just separate that happened as well. And, you know, something else to add on to it. But I do think like those are my two, I feel like a little bit of all of them could almost be, you know, a little truth to all of it. A little bit. Yeah. The fact that the Pope was so involved and made his weird statements, Mm -hmm. it seemed like he knew more than he was letting on. So I do think that she could have been exchanged or with someone inside the Vatican. And then possibly like that's when they sent sent, her off sent her off and yeah i I don't know keep her quiet yeah i don't know if they like maybe forged the document to say that you know she was deceased maybe she's not you know they just like added that on there so people would stop looking or where they looked they wouldn't find any bones so it would just be like a dead end but she could still be out there and maybe she just is not able to leave and make herself known and if that's the case, she could know. have been brainwashed. Yeah. I mean, you just don't know. Like, there's yeah. no limit to what people will do to keep their secrets, right? So, um, so that's what I think. What do you think? I think there was the mafia tie where DePettis was involved in the money laundering and that the Vatican had money that they were using to support this political group in Poland that the mafia wanted their money back. I think they knew that that cardinal had made sexual advances on her somehow. And what bigger scandal than saying, we have a Vatican girl who can say that a cardinal approached her and did have reports of some sexual abuse. That would be a threat they could use against them to get their money back. That's true. Sabri's story has a lot of truth to it. So I do think that she was possibly given to the Vatican. So the question is really, what did the Vatican do with her after that? Did they kill her? Did they send her away? I don't know if that document is accurate, but I think the Vatican had her at at one point after her abduction. It was due to money. Okay, so we're kind of on the same page with the theories, which we usually are. But then I also think about with the calls, why would they be using, what was his name? Oh, uh, Pierluigi and Mario. Was that the guy? Oh, Achetti? Who, yeah, Achetti. Oh. Who was the guy who tried to assassinate the Pope? Oh, um. That's the guy I'm thinking of. Eliacha. Eliacha. Okay, yes. That's who I'm thinking of. Like, I. Like, why would the kidnappers sure. bring him into it? Right. Or was that a cover? Oh. Yeah, I don't know. It could have been a cover. Because yeah, they ended up getting their line to the Vatican. So maybe he was just a cover. Like, release Eliacha. Mm-hmm. And then eventually they're like, okay. How about a line to the Vatican so you can speak with somebody? And who knows how that went. But Yeah, because that's what's actually like recorded. Like they have calls asking for his release. Yes. It's so strange, isn't it? It's all strange. But I wonder if that's like set up almost. Like they set it up for it to kind of seem like that's what they... Political. Yeah. But and, underlying. And what if, Jennifer, the people that called the house were set up by the Vatican to do it. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, so they could throw off the public. The mob is going to have direct ties to the Vatican because they're doing all these dealings with them. So they probably already have a direct line into somebody. They're probably not calling the parents. They're probably calling the Vatican. Yeah. So this whole Paraluigi, Mario, I mean, it could have just been the Vatican creating smoke and mirrors. Yeah. That's what I'm, that's what I'm thinking, because that's the only thing that makes sense if you, if you believe 
what we believe. That the Vatican has something to do with it. Right. Yeah. So it's like, let's create this diversion. And just throw them way off. Which it does. Because you're thinking, okay, it's related to the KGB. And the spies. Right. And it's it's political. And And if the CIA looked into it and they didn't find anything that connected them. Right. This was very interesting. Takes you all over the place, doesn't it? Oh my gosh, yeah. But all roads, they say, lead to Rome. But in this case, all roads lead to the Vatican. Have they ever said anything about it? (laughs) Well, they responded when they dug up the graves. If you know you had nothing to do with something, why would you go and be like, well, I'll prove it. Look, we'll dig up these graves. They know that people are getting close. It's like, okay, well, let's prove it. And here, we'll dig up these graves. But then the bodies are already gone. Yeah, Yeah, which is very suspicious. So I don't know. It's all very strange. One of the journalists, Purgatory, he says it's one person's life against the church. And he compares her to like a lamb brought to slaughter. And he says it's one person's life compared to the church. The church will always win. I totally believe that would be the narrative. I hope they can at least find out what happened. If she is still alive, I hope they find her. I know. Just at least give the family some closure. Yeah. So can know what happened to her. Maybe not all the details, obviously, because they, I'm sure they wouldn't do that. But at least to they let her know. Yeah, they wouldn't implicate themselves, I'm sure. Yeah, but to, just to let them know, like, her status, if she's alive or if she's passed away. What a freaking rabbit hole. Isn't it? Wow. The Emanuela Orlandi disappearance. Yeah, that one, I've never heard of it, but it was... It's a lot. It's a deep dive. Yeah. So what's next? Girl, I haven't even had time (laughs) to think about that. (laughs) We're recording three episodes. No, I'll have to look and see what, uh, what I can find. Okay. You got a book for Christmas. I sure did. I might. I might a do UFO. a UFO. It could be Canada. Well, do I have to wait till a? next year to uh, to do another UFO episode? <laughs> Once, one a year. <laughs> one a year. <laughs> is that what it is about? One a year. I don't know. Well, then this could be your one. I mean, it's a fresh year. You can do a new one. That is true. Mm-hmm. That is true. Yeah. That could be my one for the year. So you have some time. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Or email us at freshlybrewednoir at gmail.com with show ideas. Yes, show ideas. And if you uh, could rate us or review us on Spotify or Apple, we'd appreciate it. Until next time. (laughs) Stay caffeinated. Get hobbies. And don't murder people. Bye. Bye.